Take your copy of the Word of God, if you will, your Bible, and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And we are going to read through that entire chapter. It's, it's about 10 verses. It is 10 verses. And a very applicable for our day and age. Of course, the entire Bible is applicable for our day and age. <clears throat> and again, I hope, uh, I hope this day has been a blessing to you. I hope uh, you're here to worship. Um, but let's just go ahead and, and begin reading. And your copy of the Word of God, right there in the first epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Thessalonians. Verse number 1 of the Bible says, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ we give thanks to God always for you all making mention of you in our prayers remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. Verse 4 says, Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God, for our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance, as ye know, what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you, Sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to Godward is spread abroad, spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything, for they themselves show us of what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath of to come. Let us, let us go to the Lord. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much. Lord, we've already uh, opened this, this service here, this special gathering of your saints this morning, Lord, with prayer. Lord, we want to season it with prayer, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you lead us uh, in prayer and in worship and in a study of your word. And may we see you high and lifted up this morning. Lord, use me, Lord, use uh, my words and my thoughts and my mannerisms, Lord, to bring you glory and honor. And Lord, I pray, Lord, that every one of us here this morning, Lord, for whatever reason we came here this morning, I pray that we can only focus on you high and lifted up, how we can be more committed to you, Lord. If, Lord, if we're not sure that we have a home in heaven, Lord, may the day be our day of salvation, Lord. And for us Christians, Lord, I pray, Lord, that we come here today with the, with the, with the intent of worshiping you, Lord, to make much of you. Lord, we come humbly before your throne. Yeah, we come boldly, Lord, but we also come humbly. And Lord, and we thank you for that, Lord. Lord, I pray, Lord, that we can erase our, in our memories just for a moment, Lord, the agendas of tomorrow, what happened this morning and yesterday, and this focus on you this morning. And Lord, and we thank you again, Lord. Use me and use us. Meet with us. Lord, help us to meet with you. Help us to know that we've been with you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so as we go through this, this book, the whole month of September, we'll be studying through the first, uh, first epistle of Thessalonians. As we study through this, uh, I hope it's a blessing to you. But we're going to start off with a focus on this church here uh, in Thessalonica and a little, look at a little bit about how we can model ourselves as Christians and as a church here, even some 2,000 years later, after uh, this church here. So I've entitled this message... Uh, the Macedonian model, or a Macedonian model. We're going to use this as a church, that church there, and pattern our times. You know, I've been 
talking back and forth with uh, Brother Shannon here, uh, talking about homes, and they've been looking at homes here. And, uh, you know, many times when a construction company builds a house in a subdivision, you know, they build a lot of subdivisions, they'll first build a model home. And they'll, they'll do a lot of work in that model home and make sure, uh, make certain that it's a, it's a perfect thing. Uh, and when a prospective buyer comes along, and, and if he wants to get an idea of what a new house would be like, he's going to look at that that model house, right? He's going to look at that, what that house could look like. He's going to look at all the details and, and maybe he's got some construction history and he wants to look at, I wonder if this is right. I wonder if the electricity's done right, the plumbing's right and so forth. He wants to make sure it's right. And that model is not going to be perfect. Maybe he can't pick up on some of those things, but it's not going to be perfect because, because we're not perfect. We're just not perfect. But much effort is going to go into that first version home, if you will. Much effort is going to be in there and make sure they, they've crossed all their T's and dot all their I's. Many times I get that the other way around. They don't want to cross their T's. No, they do want to cross their T's. You all right this morning? That was funny. That was a laugh, you know. All right. So we want to make sure that uh, this first version home is, is good. Many times the, the owner of the home, the, the builder, the manager would come in and have some significant oversight of that new building. Uh, probably on site, maybe on site, the entire construction from, break, from laying the foundation to putting the shingles on. Like you can see out here, we got some new shingles on this, this house right next to us. From top to bottom, that, that new builder would be there or that, or that manager would be there because he knew that all future homes that would be purchased are going to be based on that model. If that model doesn't look good, why would anybody buy a house there? I mean, if it looks like a shack, you know, maybe a lean-to or maybe a shelter half. We have those in the army. You know, we, we go and see that kind of thing. And I don't, you're telling me that you're going to build me a mansion, a mansion but this is, this is what you're going to advertise? So he wants to make that thing look, look great and put as much effort into it as possible. And the first century church is a little bit similar in this, in this aspect. Jesus Christ, who is perfect, by the way, he's the builder of that church. And he put a lot of attention in the construction of his church. Jesus says, I will build my church. I will build my church. And he was very much present and involved in the construction of the first century church. And don't get me wrong, he's still very much involved in the building of churches today. But there was something about these first century churches, the church getting a foothold in this world, so to speak. And Jesus was very much involved in that. We see it all throughout the New Testament, miracles and tongues and, 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 and worshiping and, and all kinds of things like that. Jesus was very involved. The Holy Spirit was involved. God was involved in this building of the church. And Christ, again, is still the builder, even though his work today is a little less overt than it used to be in the first century. So unlike any CEO of a construction company, Jesus Christ, again, is perfect. He's the son of God. And he is just as concerned about our church as he was for the Thessalonican church, the Thessalonian church. But with the first churches here, the model churches, if you will, God saw fit to preserve some correspondence between his people, preserve some some letters, some epistles from Paul and Peter and Luke and all these uh, folks to put things together, encouraging and reproving and telling them what they got right and telling them what they got wrong. And that is a huge benefit for us. And one of these churches that proved to be a model church is this church right here. 
This church is, is one of the churches in Macedonia. If you remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul bragged on the Macedonian churches, how they could give beyond their, their own abilities. And not just, I'm not talking about finances, but themselves to, to others and to the Lord. Paul would brag on them. And this is one of these Macedonian churches. Phil, Phil, uh, the church at Philippi would be another one. Look right there at verse number 1. Paul says, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus, and if you want to shorten that, it would be Silas and Timothy, uh, unto the church of the Thessalonians, the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. So much like model homes today, they were not perfect, but they managed, this church here and the other churches of Macedonia, they managed to get a hold of some things. They managed to get a hold of some very significant things that many churches since have really not grasped. And I think even good churches, I think we're a good church that wants to honor the Lord. I think we even miss them sometimes. And it's important that we're always reminded. What's what that we talked about when we went through uh, 1 Peter? Uh, in another passage, Peter said, as long as I'm in this tabernacle, I'm going to always remind us about the things of God. As long as I'm alive, I'm going to stir up the truth that's in us. So we're going to look at these, these examples here. And although we're not a first century church, we do have the same builder. We do have the same builder. Jesus Christ built this church. It wasn't John Rating. It wasn't Bill Lindsley. It wasn't any deacons. It wasn't any collection of believers that came together. It was Jesus Christ. 20 years ago, Jesus saw fit to call a man here to the Holmfels community. And this church is a result of that. God built this church. We have the same builder as the church in Thessalonians. In Thessalonica, we have the same shepherd. And just like each home is patterned in that subdivision after the model home, we should be patterned after the model churches. Now, of course, there's technology and there's some things that are different. I'm talking about the core things, the heart issues of the church. We need to be patterned after this Macedonian model. So again, we, we've looked through this whole chapter here. We've read through 10 verses here. And this morning I want to talk about how we can individually and collectively pattern ourselves after the believers here in this church of which Paul spoke highly. So God, through Paul, planted this church. Give you a little bit of background here. He planted this church on his second missionary journey and sent this epistle. He was forced to leave Thessalonica there uh, because of some, some riots there. Um, and he was forced to leave there. And he wrote this letter back to them, uh, kind of in haste almost. And this was one of Paul's very first epistles. Galatians only being a few months before this. Uh, it was his first epistle, obviously, to the church here. Uh, but Thessalonica uh, was a very prominent city in Paul's day. It was the capital of ancient Macedonia. It was a, it was a thoroughfare of many uh, commerce and things like that. And, and the church there used that. They used technology to get the gospel out, to carry out the Great Commission. And Paul's main purpose for writing this letter was a couple things. Uh, number one, to defend the authenticity of the gospel message. And number two, to answer some questions. This young church had lots of zeal. But they wanted to know a little bit more about how they can serve God. Now, you've heard about passages about, you know, those Christians and those churches who have lots of zeal but no knowledge. And while they lack some knowledge and, and Paul's going to give them that knowledge, it's not usually in the negative connotation that we usually see zeal without knowledge because they were, they were using what they knew to be right. Right? So I can't get up here and preach to you things I do not know. But I can preach with boldness to things that I do know based on the authority of the, God, of the Word of God. And that's what they were doing. They had a lot of questions. And instead of just sitting around and figuring out what's next, they did what they knew was right. 
And we're going to and we're going to use that as an example of how we can model our ministry after that. They were they were new Christians. They were zealous for the things of God. And despite their youth, they cared very much about doing the right thing and serving God. So with that said, again, I've, I've entitled this message, the Macedonian model, uh, referring to this church being a model uh, that we can emulate in our day and age. And there are a number of things in the text that we can follow. We can go through here and pull out way more than what I'm going to pull out here this morning. But I want to highlight just a few things as we study, as we have an introduction to this study, rather. Look at verse number six again. Now, we've already read this all and this whole chapter here. And I trust that you're going to study this out throughout the month of September. But verse number six, Paul writing to them, Paul, Silas and Timothy writing to them. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. They first received the Lord. Now, I know followers are there and we're going to talk about it here more. But number one this morning, they received the word. They received the word. You know, none of their efforts, not one of them, none of their efforts would have counted for anything if they had not first received the Lord. We can do all kinds of things. We can go to church every day until we're blue in the face and we won't be a Christian no more than a car is, no more than we'd be a car by walking into the garage every day. Right? It just doesn't work that way. There has to be an interchange inside of us. They received the word first. And I know this is a simple point, but it's a significant point. For this word that they received is most definitely the gospel message. Look at verse 5. It says, Our gospel came not to you in word only, but also in power. Now, many times we see that and we focus on the power, but look what it came in first. In word. The gospel came in word and they received the gospel. The Holy, uh, they came also in power. It came with the Holy Ghost and it also came in much assurance. I like that word there, much assurance. That, that, that's, that's exciting to me. Uh, in my home church back in Tennessee, I, there was a pastor named by, by the name of John Dalton. He's, he's long gone now. He's at a different church. Um, he's actually filling in pulpits from here to there. He's in his 60s. Uh, we have a young pastor there now. But Pastor Dalton used to say that there is a time in our life, scripturally accurate, I believe, there's a time in our life when every person must trust Christ as their Savior. That was when we were born again. And we're going to talk about that here in a moment. But then there is a time when we have assurance that we've been born again. Right, and there's a difference there. There is assurance that we are a child of God. And there is a difference in somebody who is saved without assurance and saved with assurance. It's the difference of a soldier going on the battlefield and knowing he cannot be destroyed. I know we can't have that here. But, you know, trust in your, in your, in your, in your MRAP. You know, when the first MRAPs came out, you know, we didn't like them because they were all top heavy and falling over left and right. But they can take a blast with the V-hole and all that stuff. So we had some assurance that we could live through those things. Much more assurance than we had driving in the Humvees, right? So if we take that and we, and we advance that a little bit theologically and, and personally, if we have assurance of our salvation, it changes how we look at life. It changes us. They received the word in much assurance. They were saved and they knew they were saved. That's a difference. And it's not a mistake here that, that Paul here, right in the introduction, makes sure to mention their salvation. He mentions their election of God. And he mentions that the church was in Christ. Not just in Macedonia. In Christ. In Christ. Salvation is where it began for this church. And salvation is where it begins with us. If you're here this morning and you don't know for sure, make, 
make sure that you have a home in heaven. Call upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Because any church, our church, this church, is not just a gathering of like-minded people. We're not here because we're Democrats or Republicans or leaning left or right. None of that matters here. We come here to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why we're here. And there is no true worship unless you are a child of God. You must be a child of God. We're not just gathered because we have some similar common things. Our commonality is in Jesus Christ. A church is a called out assembly of born again baptized believers. A church is made up of individuals who have placed their trust in Christ. And true churches today are filled just like these churches here in Thessalonica are filled with the same type of individuals, believers, blood bought, redeemed believers. They received the word. You know, it's not enough just to perceive the word. We must receive the word. We can understand all we can know about the Bible, the word, Jesus Christ. But until we receive him, there's no difference. You know, we can know all there is to know about Abraham Lincoln. Or I used to know the name of the first chancellor here in Germany, but I forget. Somebody probably knows that. You know what, maybe? No. <laughs> We can know all there is about him. We can know all there is about, you know, our heroes in the past, but we will never know them. Right? You see the difference? We can know all there is about them. We can know their blood type and all that kind of stuff, but you don't know them. And that's the same thing when it comes to our walk with the Lord, our relationship with God. There must be a personal relationship with God. We have to receive him. John 1 verse 12 says, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, and even to them that believe on His name. Listen, all of us are born with a need for deliverance from sin, from Satan, and even from ourselves. We need to be redeemed. And Jesus is that only Redeemer who can rescue us. Again, you can know all these things, and you can know better. You can know them better than any preacher who ever walked this ground. But if you did not receive Christ, it's all for naught. You're none of His. He must receive the world. A word. To be a child of God. Get this now. To be a child of God. Look at that verse there. 12, verse John 1, 12. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power. Right? To become the sons of God. What kind of power could it take for me to be a son of God? That's a lot of power. I mean, you see on the outside, but I, I see a little bit more on the inside. It takes a lot of power to make me a child of God. And that power is only found in the blood of of the Lord Jesus Christ. We must be born into the family of God. John 3, 3 says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Please receive the word today. There is zero sense, zero sense in following the example of a model church without first receiving him who built that church. Notice also that this Macedonian church was filled with genuine believers. Again, they received the word, but they received it in much affliction. They received it in much affliction. Look at verse 6 again. And you became followers of us, of the Lord, and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction. You know, before the church was, or the church here at Thessalonica was a church, what were they? They were a group of idol worshipers. They worshiped Idols. They worship things made with their own hands. And before we look down our noses and say, how ridiculous is that? We're not too far. We're not too far from that. We, our, our idols are maybe not tangible, but they're made by us. 
They were made by us. Internet, movies, and all these things like that. Uh, we have to be careful. They were idol worshipers, and they were simply unbelievers. This church here, who were far, who as far from the truth as some folks even in our community today, maybe even some here this morning. But God loved them. As Romans 5, 8 says, while they were yet sinners, Christ died for them. And he sent them, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to tell them about the Lord. And they received the word. They received Christ. And everything changed from idol worship to worship of the true God. They went from being accepted by the word world to receiving the word with much affliction. And while we might not receive the same measure of affliction today as they did, you know, here in Germany and in Europe and in the United States, we might not receive the same kind of affliction that they did, yet, Tom will tell, the, the ballot is still out, if you will, not a political statement, but the vote is still out on what our future still holds. But regardless of what comes our way, there should be a noted difference between believers and unbelievers. A noted difference. I've often wondered about myself why I care so much about being accepted by unbelievers when Paul wrote, Know ye not that ye shall judge angels? And then how much more things that pertain to this life? Why am I wrapped around the axle, so to speak, on things in this life when God says, In the end, I will be a judge of this life? Not because of anything in me, but because of everything that's in Him. And I believe the reason this Thessalonian church was in much affliction is very clear. They were living for Jesus instead of worshiping for idols. They were a conflict of what their community is. And we talked to our teens on Tuesday. You want to be different today? You want to be a different teen? Follow Jesus. Everybody talks about being different and be yourself and be radical. Follow Jesus. I promise you'll stand out. You will stand out. They were living for Jesus and they stood out. They didn't worship idols anymore. And I don't think our lives, again, are much different from theirs. You know, if, as I was preaching this, or, or preparing this message here, if I had but one message in my life that I could, if the Lord says you only have to preach this message and you only can preach it to Christians. If I had one message to preach to Christians, I would say this. I'd preach all in, no holding back. All the way to the hill. Radical commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'd preach it to myself every day. And I'd preach it to the masses every day. We need Christians today to be all in. So much of, yeah, I'm a believer. Where are you going? I don't know. I'm going here. I'm going there. No difference in the world. We need Christians. You know, every Christian, every, every writer of the New Testament, we'd call radical. We would call them radical. The world would call them radical Christians. They, what, would Paul, what would we think of Paul today? When he came here and he said this, what would we think of the Thessalonican church? Oh, there are those, those holier than thou church again over there not worshiping idols. They don't want to go over there. They don't shop here because of that. They don't do this because of that. Special people. Who cares what the world thinks? Why are we so wrapped around that? Let's care about what our Savior believes and what he thinks of us. As we study this month in 1 Thessalonians, we will see that the Lord is coming back. We will see very clearly that the Lord is coming back. And one of the things that I certainly don't want to be when he returns is lukewarm. I do not want to be lukewarm. To these authentic Christians here in this early church, those earthly afflictions to them were par for the course. We go play golf. Well, I don't play golf, but you go play golf and there's those obstacles. And you're like, oh, this is great. It's par for the course. But then we look at the Christian life. Oh, it's tough. I don't want to live for the Lord anymore. Let's follow the Lord. Let's be all in. Par for the course. 
Why, why do they look at life that way? Because their reason for their affliction was the source of their joy. Look at verse 6 again. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. Joy of the Holy Ghost. They received the gospel. They received the word in much affliction and joy. Not just any joy. Not just, oh, I got, you know, I don't know. I got, I caught all green lights on the way to work today. Not that kind of joy. They had joy of the Holy Spirit. And I don't know about you. When I read this, I can't think of many times when I've endured affliction and joy comes to mind. Right? We don't work that way. Oh, I'm happy because of this. But happy and joy are kind of different, aren't they? The Thessalonians, the Thessalon this church here, these Christians here, received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. Their joy was not in material things. It was not in circumstances. It was not in anything earthly. Their joy was inside. It was within the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. And true joy, truly, true joy only comes from Jesus Christ. It comes when we view life in light of God's riches. When we view our trials in light of God's riches. Now, it doesn't mean, again, that we're happy all the time. That would be kind of strange, if you ask me. We'd have to put our mask back on because we'd look weird smiling all the time. But it does mean we have joy on the inside. Joy in our heart. Because as Christians, we know that whatever we're going through in this life, how ridiculous or how illogical it might be, we have a home in heaven. We have joy. And none of these things compare to the Lord Jesus Christ. You heard that old hymn, old hymn lyric says this. It says this, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in His wonderful face, and all the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. You see, when we focus on Christ... We're not focused on this life. And things are different. The Christians of this church here received the word with joy. They were saved. They knew they were saved. And they were not ungrateful Christians. They didn't just trust the Lord for salvation. They didn't just get a get out of hell free ticket. They followed him in a very practical application. Look at verse 6 again. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word. Now realize that Paul mentions again following before receiving, but his implication is clear. They became followers because they received the Lord. That's very clear, I think, to see there. So number two, they followed the Lord. They put their faith in action. They follow the Lord. And I'm not just talking about following somebody to the store here. They follow. That word follow in the Greek, one of the definitions means to imitate, to live like that individual, to live like Christ. They imitated Paul. They imitated Silas and Timothy as they followed the Lord because they desired to be like Christ. We need Christians. I need to be a Christian who desires to be more like Christ. You know, I think about, you know, those those folks and I'm typically one of those folks who try to make everybody happy. But at the core of that, it's really pride. It's really big. I want to make everybody happy so they're happy with me so I can feel good about them. Right. You see how that all twists around, how we use the world's logic to to really, I don't know, mess up life. We really should be living our life to make him happy. Mm -hmm. And truly, if we're making him happy, those Christians who are making him happy are going to be right with us. It's going to, it, won't be, it won't be perfect, of course, but the closer we draw to him, we're only naturally drawing closer to each other. Paul would later write here in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, Be you followers of me, even as I am, follower, I am a follower of Christ. 
And verse 3 here, look at verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians. It says, Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. This verse here gives us a glimpse of how they imitated Christ in their lives by imitating godly leaders around them. By imitating others around them. Now there may be people to follow in this world. There may be lots of people we can follow. Maybe movie stars or singers or sports players or politicians. But i got to be honest with you. I've, I've resolved to only follow those who follow the Lord. Because if they're not following the Lord, I have no interest in them. Why should any Christian have any interest in them? Now, I'm, I'm, not, I'm also aware that there are unbelievers who will have some ideals and values that that mirror Christians. And we can stand behind some of those things, of course, as they follow biblical principles. But we have to be very careful about who we follow. Now, I made a point because another preacher told me this, uh, that same preacher I was telling you before. He's like, make sure that people who influence you are small. Maybe you can count them on one hand. The people who, make, the people who allow you to change should be following God. Paul says, follow me as I follow the Lord. Those five people, maybe, maybe you limit to five. Make sure those five people follow the Lord. Because if they're not, where are you going to end up? You're not going to follow the Lord. Make sure they're following the Lord. Probably you can even get it smaller than that. And again, there are many people who have biblical principles, but make sure they're following the Lord. We must be careful who we, who we follow and who we allow to influence us. I think it's very simple. Are they bringing us closer to God or not? And with all the back and forth in this world, I, I rarely watch the news anymore because it's just aggravating. Right? But it's this and that and this and that here in Germany, here in America, Romania. I mean, you go on and on. There's just news all over the place that's just conflicting. Everything's back and forth. And as we, as we view these things or as we look at other individuals, whether they're authors or other pastors, the very first litmus test we should have is whether or not they follow God. Do they follow God in accordance with this book? If not, have a nice day. You can be, still be kind to them, but follow the Lord. And notice in our text here, there are three simple ways in which this church here followed the Lord. There in verse 3 again. He says, remember without ceasing your work of faith. Your work of faith. You know, if, if you're in church more than a couple times in your life, you will probably hear a message on faith. It's going to come up. It's going to come up, if not every message. Because we are, are to be a people of faith. In our study on Acts on Thursdays, we saw that faith is a divine currency in our transactions with God. Now, it's not monetary, of course, but God deals with faith and in our faith. True righteousness and victorious living must always have a large element of faith. Why? Because whatsoever is not of faith is sin. I didn't write that. Paul wrote that, inspired by the Holy Ghost. Romans 14, 23. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. A work of faith here means that their faith produced works. Now, we started off with the book of James this year. James 2, 17 says that faith without works is dead. Right? I mean, we want to follow the Lord. If we have a faith and we don't have any works, what does that say about our faith? I think many times we want to spiritualize the practical part of being a Christian. Oh, I'm a Christian... I heard, I read a book a couple months ago. He said, I'm a believer, but I don't believe in being an overt believer. Where do you get that from the word? We should be overt believers. We, the, the Lord says, let your light so shine. How do you get around that? We should have a faith that works. You know, if I were to tell you that I'm a mechanic, 
you would assume that I know how to work on a car. You would actually even assume that I worked on cars from time to time. But if I told you that I was a mechanic and you spent maybe 10 years with me and you never saw me work on a car, would you still believe I was a mechanic? Probably not. Maybe I used to be a mechanic. Maybe I can say that. But the same is true of a Christian. If I tell you I'm a Christian and, we, and you don't see anything from me in my life as a Christian, I mean, things should start to go off. Well, should I be following him? I don't, I don't think so. Being a child of God is, of course, more than a profession. But a faith that saves is a faith that works. As a matter of fact, if James is true, and I believe it is, the amount of faith required for salvation is the same amount that produces good works. And then we see back in verse number three, not only did they have a work of faith, but they had a labor of love, a labor of love. I love the way that works, a labor of love. We very rarely do we consider labor and love together. A faith that works, I think, leads to a labor of love, just like it did for these Christians. The Greek word here for labor doesn't mean like, you know, you know, you, you, I have this internet I go to and I get these free pictures like this background here. They're royalty free and all this stuff like that. And sometimes I'm looking for hard work. And I put in hard work. And the first, uh, you can go in there, a hundred pictures are all people sitting behind their computers. And I'm not knocking that. But things have changed a little bit over the years, right? I mean, if you were to Google that a hundred years ago, there'd be people with hammers, firemen, and, you know, railroad workers and all these things like that. People, people have changed. I don't think when Paul said labor of love, he was thinking about sitting behind a computer. Now, I sit behind a computer a lot of my time. I mean, I, I do messages behind a computer on a desk. So I'm not saying there's, there's anything to take away from that. I'm just saying things have, have changed. And his, the word labor here, it means to labor to weariness. To labor to weariness. This church, this is not the pastor he's talking to now, although he's included. They worked, they labored in the Lord, in love, to weariness. When is the last time I've done that? When is the last time I've walked 12 miles just to give the gospel out? I walked 12 miles in the army. For what reason? Who knows, Bobby? I don't know. <laughs> but have I ever been weary of serving the Lord? I think many times we, we put our efforts in other things and we're willing to go the extra mile in other things, but not the extra mile in our service to the Lord. Paul said this church, were, they worked in a labor of love until they were weary. You know, the gain in living for the Lord was worth the pain for this church. To, to me, it was like one of those jobs that you love doing and one that had great fulfillment. You ever... I mean, I remember growing up, I was talking to my daughter yesterday about splitting wood, you know, before wood splitters and all those things. And we'd split like a quarter, quarter wood or something like that, you know. And at the end of the day, you're like, man, that's fulfilling. I got a hard work, Brother Harry. You know, you're working at those, picking up those stones and stuff. At the end of the day, you know that you've got a hard job and you've done, you've accomplished something that day. I don't think splitting cords of wood was a labor of love, to be honest with you. But there's a fulfillment to the Christian walk. When we really give ourselves to God, that is truly the only fulfillment. You know, we look in some of the pages, Time Magazine, and some of you have this, you know, the person of the year, the person of the decade, the person of the century, how they've changed, how they've influenced greatly in that time period, right? They've made a significant change. And I'm not knocking some of those things. Some of those people deserve recognition. But if we lead one person to the Lord, we've changed that soul's destiny forever, not just the time period forever. We changed their destiny. Now God did it, of course, but he used us to do that. What greater fulfillment is there than that? 
And this church here got a hold of that. They grasped the concept of eternity enough to compel them to live with eternity in mind. Their labor of love led them to sound out the word. And we'll get to that here in a moment. Uh, but for now, we see very clearly that they got it. They really understood what Paul was preaching and teaching. And we need to get it. Now, I've said a couple Thursdays ago that every ministry should be balanced. But if we're going to be off balance in any area, it needs to be evangelism. It needs to be evangelism. I think I need to get better at it. I think we all need to get better. If, if he's the most important person in our life and he's truly redeemed us, why are we not telling the whole world? They had a work of faith. They had a labor of love. And then lastly, under that point there, they had patience of hope. Patience of hope. You know, faith and hope lead to patience. And not just any patience, but patience of hope. A hope that it's in Jesus. Their faith and love enabled them to endure anything that this world brought them. And, and if you know, if you study that Romans chapter 5 and you compare this, you know, that passage in there, tribulations, experience, and faith. He's following the, the same pattern here. Tribulations lead, or faith lead to tribulations. Tribulations led to patience, and patience led to hope. You know, our life is but a vapor. The next life is eternal. Our hope goes into the next life if it's in Jesus. In fact, it's the only hope that goes beyond the grave. But it's in this life that we exercise our faith. It's in this life that we have our labor of love. It's in this life that we exercise that patience of hope. We must go through tribulations in this life. You know, a ship captain doesn't get good at being a ship captain sailing in seas like, well, it's not really a sea, but sailing in smooth seas. There must be work. There must be labor. And there must be patience. Romans 8, 18 says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So when we by faith can see the glory, things in this life kind of lose their impact on, our us, on us. And by contrast, when we have trouble seeing that glory, we start losing patience. I think that's a very, applicable, a very applicable thing. When I am in something right at the very moment and I'm losing patience, it's probably because of a lack of faith. I mean, how, what else could it be? I'm trusting in the circumstance and not in my Savior. And now I'm frustrated. Jesus is not the author of confusion nor of frustration. Faith is the key. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. These Thessalonians here got a hold of that. They took Paul's words to heart. They followed his lead. And by doing so, they followed Christ. They took their new life seriously. They were all in. You know, Matthew 4.19 says, Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. And we're almost done with this point here. But this is exactly what this, these Christians did. They left their nets. They left their idols. They left their desires. They left and followed Jesus. And quite frankly, not only should the world turn to Christ. We believe that. We pray for that. We go get them. But we have Christians today who are still by the nets. Christians, they believe, but they're still by the nets. Walk away from the net. Leave it away and follow the Lord. Follow the Lord. They received the word. They followed the Lord. And then look at verse number 7. Again, this is a quick point. We're almost done here. So that ye were in samples, examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. Paul states that they were examples to the other believers. 
Not just in Thessalonica, but in Macedonia and Achaia. If you were to look at all of the map, Macedonia is huge, just like modern day Greece. And then there's Achaia off to the, to the northeast of that. It's, it's a lot of area there. They were examples to all of them, and they're still examples to us today. But number one, or letter A there, they, they sounded out the word. That's how we can follow them. They sounded out the word. Jesus stated that he would make them fishers of men, and he did. They followed him. And it's evident that the Christians of Thessalonica were followers of men, followers of Christ rather, because they were fishers of men. In verse 8, look at verse 8. It says, For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God were to spread abroad, so that we need not speak anything. Wow. What a, what a, what a comment by Paul to this church. May we have the same reputation. I, I wish, you know, I spent the, pretty much the better part of half the day, I guess, with Pastor Ray, the founding pastor of this church up in Ansbach. I spent a day with him. And it, wouldn't it be nice if he came by one day on a Saturday or a Friday, and it just started, because he, he was pastor here for almost 20 years, and he's just started going through some of the places he used to go through, like some of the homes and, and you're knocking on doors. And he knocked on the door, and they said, yep, yeah, already, I've already heard about the church. And more importantly, I've already heard about the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he goes to the next door, same thing. The next door, the same thing. Next door, I mean, what? And then he comes back to me, and he tells us, you know, I didn't tell you, but I came down yesterday and I knocked on every door in all the home fields and they already heard about Jesus Christ. What a compliment. That's what Paul is saying to this church here. They had a, they, a great example. They already heard about the Lord. I think we should follow their example. They sounded out the word and then look. Next, they lived out the word. And if you remember anything as we come to a close, I hope you remember all of this, but this, for Christians anyway, this last point is, is the one that touched my heart the most. Look at verse 8 again. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and in Achaia, but also in every place your faith, not their message, by the way, your faith to Godward is spread abroad. In every place your faith to Godward is spread about. Not only was the word of God spread throughout the region, but their faith. Now, how does their faith get spread out? How, do, how can Paul say that? I truly believe that he measured their faith with their actions. They were known that they were the real deal. These men matched their message. Their behavior backed up their belief. They lived out their faith. They had a faith that works. They were genuine. Look at verse 9. For they themselves show us, this is, this is the Thessalonians, those outside the church. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. In other words, the effect in the people that you have reached, Thessalonica, the effect in the people that you have reached with the gospel is evidence that we reached you with the gospel. I, I hope that comes across very, it, it hit me like a ton of bricks. So in other words, if, if I'm witnessing to Shannon here and he's, he's, uh, he's not saved, he's, he's just living for the devil, living for the world, you know, and eating quiche and yogurt and pancakes and all that kind of stuff like that, you know. And I go and convert him and he starts eating bacon and I'm just kidding. But, you know, the Lord saves his soul and then Paul, Pastor Raynant, comes back in and he bypasses me, doesn't meet me, he meets him and Brother Shannon tells me about it, tells Pastor Rennick about his walk with the Lord and how 
I was used of God to lead him to the Lord. Pastor Ray then comes to me. He's like, you know, I always had faith in you. I believe that you were doing the right thing. But he's evidence that you're doing the right thing. He's evidence that you're following God. Friends, we need evidence. We need evidence. What a statement. The, their authentic, authenticity proves my authenticity. And the question this morning for us Christians, who proves your authenticity? Who says you're a Christian? Is there any evidence that says that you got a hold of this thing that God's talking about here in this first epistle to the Thessalonians? What a statement. May this be said of us. Where is our fruit? And then lastly, I want you to notice those two verses again, 9 and 10. For they themselves show us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Adding to, their, adding to the evidence of their faith, Paul makes clear that he recognizes their turn from idols to God and their waiting upon the Lord's return. And Paul finalizes this chapter with another compliment tied to their looking for the rapture, looking for the Lord's return. I personally believe this earnest expectation of Christ in these Christians here is what made them a great church. They knew the Lord was coming back, so they got after it. I think many times we believe the Lord's coming back, but we think it's way down the road. And it might be. But the Lord promises an imminent return, and we know not the day. They believed that the Lord's return, and so it compelled them to action. I think they, they labored in love like there was no tomorrow. And this begs the question for us, what would you do today if you knew tomorrow wasn't coming? If you're not a Christian, I think the answer is obvious. But if you are a Christian, what would you do today if you knew tomorrow wasn't coming? The church at Thessalonica, they, would, they have an easy answer. They would tell as many folks as they could about Jesus Christ. And that's what they did. Because they believed tomorrow could be their last day. What would we answer with? Which friend would you call? Which relative would you call? Who would you give the gospel to one more time? If you're not saved again... And you know tomorrow is the end. And you think maybe I should get saved. Don't wait another day. We are not promised tomorrow. We are not promised tomorrow. I pray that we can follow this Macedonian model here. Here, 2,000 some years later, as Homefuss Baptist Church. And if the Lord tarries, may we be a model down the road somewhere as well. Let's pray.